everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. everybody, it's Dr. Deanna. Welcome back to another episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. I am so glad that you're here tuning in. This is such a great podcast to come. Just you wait. In this interview, I'm talking with Dr. Lise Allshuler. She's one of my favorite people, actually, and I've known her for a really long time and have seen her personal and professional journeys. And uh, gosh, you know, she, in my mind, is what I would call a high science, high spirit, high inspiration, high information. Uh, She is just high integrity to the core in everything she does. And many people don't really want to get into cancer, talking about cancer prevention or even cancer treatment. Now, in this interview, I'm talking with her about all kinds of things as they relate to cancer prevention and reducing risk. But you can check out her books. She has become an authority on naturopathic oncology that really speaks to many levels of cancer, looking at food, looking at lifestyle, looking at cancer prevention, looking at facets of treatment. And you know what? She's actually had breast cancer. She's gone through this herself. Her father also had pancreatic cancer. So she comes from a place of knowing, doing. Uh, She has walked the talk. So, without further ado, uh, here we go to listening to um, the the wisdom of Dr. Lise Allshuler. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Lise Allshuler. Welcome, Lise. Well, hello. Glad to be here. Oh, I've been waiting for this time to uh, just have some chat time with you. You're you're one of the people in the integrative medicine field that I so appreciate. Your demeanor is so calm, cool, and collected. You know your stuff. <laughs> I mean, you're you're a woman of integration. So it's uh, it's a delight to have you. Well, thank you. It takes one to know one, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're on the same wavelength in in many ways. So speaking of wavelength, I, uh, I ask everybody the same question at the first question out of the shoot, which is, uh, I'm kind of curious. I actually don't know this about you, but I kind of have a sense of what it might be. But what is your favorite color? Well, gosh, and you know, I have to compliment you on that segue. That was brilliant. Um, wavelength and color. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a hard time picking, but the two, I have two, so I'm going to break the rules right at the get-go, and I'm going to say that my two favorite colors are blue and green, and I don't know, blue just feels so delicious to me. I just you know, like a blueberry, a bowl of blueberries. I just want to dive right in. Um, and green, I love, love green, which is kind of funny because I live in the desert. Surprisingly, (laughs) there's more green than you would think in the desert. So I really appreciate the green that I see, but you know, to be honest, Deanna, I have to say that for example, a beautiful sunset is one of my most favorite things to see ever. And that has no blue or green in it. So Mm. I'm not sure if I can pick. 
Yeah, and uh, we'll just go with kind of your first flow. And not everybody has the same, you know, it could change. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like in the moment, where where do we find ourselves? But I've always associated you with blue. You have mm. these sparkly aqua eyes. And I don't know, I just think you look really good in blue. You know how some people just resonate? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that person is a blue person because, you know, blue just fits whenever they wear it. You know, it just looks right. Yeah, um, I do love blue, I have to say. Blue sky blue clothes yeah blue blue's good yeah and and the way that i look at blue it's the color of the mind uh it's the color of the intellect it's the thinking creative dreaming mind and it's also a very intuitive color so definitely qualities that i associate with you too Mm, yeah that's interesting i didn't know that about blue (laughs) well you know for the people listening, um, they may not know your story, but I think that before I can even ask you any sciencey, cut and dry questions, I feel like people need to get to know you. And I don't ask all of my guests about their personal story, but you have such a pivotal, I mean, I remember listening to you at the IFM, the Institute for Functional Medicine annual conference. You're one of the keynote speakers. It was on cancer and you were telling your personal story of course, you got into the science. I think you you present such a great meld of personal and professional streams. And so unpack your story a bit for us and, and kind mm-hmm. of walk us through your life and how you came to be interested in cancer. Yeah, well, you know, and I think that for me, I, as you know, I love science, but science really has no value unless it's going to improve people's and people's lives. And so I think the personal is really important. And for me, you know, I have wanted to be a doctor since I was in third grade. I remember very clearly making a decision at that point. So I've always had this affinity towards healthcare. And I didn't really create an interest in oncology until I was in college and I had an elective course where uh, these individuals, all different kinds of people who had been diagnosed with cancer, came in front of the, the class and basically shared their stories. And I was blown away by these people because there was something that were, they were all different, but they were all connected in this incredible sense of life and they had an appreciation for being alive and their sense of values and the, what's important in life was was just coming through so strongly despite the experience of their or maybe because of the experience of their disease it made a really strong mark on me and I think it was that moment that I decided I wanted to at some point in my professional career really work with people who were diagnosed with cancer just selfishly to be in that in that essence, that presence, that wisdom. And um, then as I went forward with my career, it took me about 10 years to circle back to that. And I had the opportunity to work at a cancer specialty hospital and really, again, just felt uh, so honored to be among people who are dealing with very difficult diseases. We were I was working at a cancer specialty hospital, so we had a lot of very complex, advanced cases come in. And so people were really dealing with a lot. And, you know, their humanity and their courage shone through. It was a great opportunity for me to apply my science at the same time. But, you know, so that was all just very fulfilling. And then I, I think, I don't know what, you know, what, uh, what the universe was trying to help me with, if I could claim it for that. But, um, I had a lot more to learn clearly because, uh, while I was working at that, 
that cancer specialty hospital. My father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and he and I were very close, and he had a very poor prognosis up front, and I knew a lot about cancer, so I looked at his scans, and sure enough, this was a man that was not destined to be on the planet for very much longer. He outlived his prognosis significantly. He did eventually die from his pancreatic cancer, but he incorporated a lot of integrative therapies. He did conventional therapies as well, and he lived really healthfully for another year and a half plus some, and he really was such a, uh, a wonderful opportunity for me to learn what it meant to, as he called it, die with his eyes wide open. So he just committed to living life full on in you know the most meaningful way he could for the last part of his life. And uh, so I learned a tremendous amount from my father. Uh, but had more to learn. Two years later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer mm -hmm. and for, you know, various reasons, ended up doing both a conventional treatment plan, which included everything from surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, endocrine treatment to uh, where I am now, which is a survivor without conventional treatment. But of course, integrated with that conventional treatment, uh, all the things that I have expertise in. So lifestyle and dietary supplements and, you know, mental, emotional wellness. And really at every point along my way, no matter what was happening, I felt like a healthy person with cancer or a healthy person receiving chemotherapy. And I feel like a healthy survivor, a thriver, as I like to say. So uh, that experience has really helped me quite a lot in understanding what this disease is like from the inside and gives me a lot more empathy for my patients. And um, of course, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it was a blessing in many ways too. You know, I didn't know way back when, when you were exposed to this kind of classroom setting of listening to people that had had cancer. And isn't it kind of interesting, I'm now kind of connecting the dots in your life, how you had this natural inclination and you couldn't even explain it, but then later on your dad ends up getting pancreatic cancer and then you end up with breast cancer. It's kind of like all these uh, paths were kind of primed together in some way. And you're, you're so humble, you didn't even mention it, but you've written some of the best books on cancer and, and nutrition and, 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 and different treatments and therapies. Um, so this has really, I think, whenever anybody asks me about integrative oncology, I'm always saying your name, Lise Alshuler, Lise Alshuler. You've got it. In fact, that just happened about two or three weeks ago, somebody was asking me, and I gave them your name. So um, it's just amazing to me how... Um, you know, you listen to this intuitive kind of feeling that you had, this gravitational pull towards these different aspects that led you all in this direction of becoming an expert in uh, naturopathic oncology. I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I, I have a bunch of, um, I'm taking notes while you're talking too about little quotes and things that you said. And one of the things that you said was um, uh, survivor, uh, and then you changed to thriver. And I can remember... Jeff Bland, who many people know, he, of course, he's the father of functional medicine. Uh, I remember Jeff making a comment once about how it's not about surviving cancer. It's not like cancer is more powerful than us, that he really loved this word victor. Mm. <laughs> you know, Jeff, in that kind of like, um, you know, just extremely empowering way. So I really like, I actually like your take on that word thriver, which was really the basis for you creating your five to thrive plan, right? 
It, it yes, absolutely, and you know this terminology is so important. And I think um, now that you're bringing this up, I would just comment on this a little bit because I also don't want this to be a burden to people. There's an expectation I think that some people who have cancer diagnosed feel, which is that they're supposed to be transformed by this experience, and they're supposed to emerge from this experience as this wondrous new person. And that doesn't necessarily have to happen, but I think for me, what thriving really means is is kind of what you said, is ta- is altering the relationship with the disease so that we're not victimized by the disease and we're not simply sub, you know our life isn't doesn't become sort of this wounded um, you know being that that cancers come in and poking us with its various mm-hmm. pointy things and we have to just sort of take it it's really about emerging with this experience into a sense of integrity taking on yes i have a diagnosis of cancer what does this mean for who i am in this world and how can i be more myself whatever that means and i think so i just want to make sure that i don't create a sort of a sense of of obligation for people who are diagnosed because it doesn't mean that they have to emerge joyful and happy and wow i've got my whole self full now you know i think that it because it's a hard disease for many people many more people are living with cancer for many years and so they're in and out of treatment symptoms come and go and so really developing a relationship with the disease in a way that puts you in the driver's seat of your life and gives you the opportunity to use cancer as a teacher, a harsh teacher, but a teacher nonetheless, I think is kind of where I go with Thriver. So we can even add driver onto the Thriver. (laughs) (laughs) Survivor, Thriver, Driver. That's awesome. I love it. Uh, And Lisa, I want to talk more about nutrition. Before we get to nutrition, however, I can't help but, since we're having this conversation, I can't help but reflect back to, um, I remember I was teaching at a cancer retreat center, and I taught there for five years. So every month I'd go in, there was a cancer retreat, and um, I'd give a talk on nutrition. And I remember in one of the sessions I had this woman burst out she was very angry and she said you know how can you talk with me about organic food I did organic food I made the best choices and I still got cancer mm-hmm. so I, and it was almost like every group I went and talked with about nutrition there was such a high um, compliance already. People already knew about a lot of these things. And so there was a sense of frustration, a sense of anger, even bitterness about, hey, I thought I did everything right. So why did I get cancer? Yeah. And so maybe speaking to that kind of the emotional connection here and that relationship and, you know, is cancer really all about food or, you know, all the other different features and facets too? Mm-hmm. You know, I hear that too, and I think it's such a good thing for you to bring up because um, nothing that we do in and of itself can take our risk of cancer down to zero. You know, if you look at the studies on the relationship between diet and cancer and you kind of were to array them all into a big line and then look at the common denominator, you do see that that really the, the, the key component of diet in terms of reducing the risk of cancer and its recurrence is vegetable intake. That's for sure the bottom line. Um, And fruit, so plant-based. And um, yet, 
in the most compliant, what we call cohorts or groups of people that eat the most plant-based diets, they're, they're really at best reducing their risk by say 50%. So they're cutting the risk in half, but that doesn't mean it's going down to zero. There's still some risk left and whatever that risk that's left is, is, de is dependent on a lot of other factors, some of which are beyond our control. Environmental exposures, there's not a lot that we can do about that necessarily. Um, activity levels, sleep levels, stress levels, um, genetics play a role. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of factors that come together and create the unfortunate circumstance of cancer. So there, you know, we can, yes, eat a really healthy diet, and we can even combine that with good exercise and good stress management and still get cancer. But we have to know that we've reduced our risk, perhaps even delayed the onset of that cancer by some period of time through our lifestyle. And I would assert if we continue those habits, we will reduce our risk of recurrence. Again, not down to zero, but we'll reduce the risk of recurrence. And if we do get a recurrence, we're going to be a lot healthier moving through that recurrence than we would otherwise. That's really beautifully said. Uh, I wish that we did in some way have controls of ourselves so that we could see how worse off we might have been if we didn't make those choices. My dad happens to be an identical twin, so it's kind of interesting because he and his brother have lived very different lives, and you can see how they looked very identical when they were young, and now they're very different, and yeah, we just don't have that luxury of, of seeing what we would be like if we made different choices. But mm -hmm. I like what you said about how we have in some ways reduced our risk. I mean, the science is, this is why I always come back to color because there's all this dietary dogma out there, whether it's keto and paleo and vegan and vegetarian, but really the unifying factor, the thing that nobody can arm wrestle and, and go against is really the fact of fruits and vegetables. And uh, what, what's intriguing me, and I want to get your take on this, because this is kind of a newer concept of looking at the different colors for specific cancers. And um, I know that there was one study looking not specifically at the colors, but looking at flavonoids in plant foods and their correlation with different types of cancer risk. So everything from neurological cancers, digestive cancers, etc., and showing that there were different risk reductions from having flavonoids. So it's not like all plants work on the same cancers in the same way, but maybe you can speak a little bit generally to what can plant foods do for us, maybe with inflammation, some of the things that you talk about with the, the, the Thrive Plan, and then more specifically, how can we use certain foods to target maybe certain cancers that we may have an elevated risk for? Mm -hmm. You know, and just, I don't, we don't know, we, the collective, we don't really fully understand to the best of my knowledge yet how we can pair certain flavonoids found in certain foods to certain cancer types. But I do believe that that connection exists for in some ways because flavonoids appear to have a bit of a tropism or an affinity to certain organ systems. Like a good example of that are the flavonoids found in hawthorn, which is a, used more as a botanical extract, have an affinity to the heart and they really focus their actions on the heart. Or the flavonoids in milk thistle tend to really focus their 
you know efficacy in their actions in the liver so and there is so there is sort of this tissue affinity idea um, so it's probably true in in you know in terms of specific cancer prevention but in general the thing about flavonoids that's so unique and why they're so critical I think in cancer prevention is that when we ingest flavanols and flavonoids and all these other kinds of, of what we the bigger category called polyphenols, all of these compounds get first uh, broken down by the bacteria in our intestines, and then most of them get conjugated or they are bound up by uh, usually an, an an amino acid, which is a part of a protein molecule, and they're stored intracellularly. So they kind of sit around in our cells. So, the, you know, I kind of think of it as the more we eat, the more we load up our cells with these, these flavonoids that are sort of in the wings waiting. And then depending on what the cell experiences from an oxidative standpoint or from a uh, oxidative stress standpoint, that will determine when those flavonoids get activated intracellularly, and they have very specific actions within the cell in terms of their ability to, to organize the antioxidant defense or response on the part of the cell. So they have a very key protective role in the cell, and uh, they also interestingly if the stress is overwhelming to the cell and the cell really is can't protect itself anymore flavonoids also help that cell to undergo what's called apoptosis or cell suicide so it's just a very neat and tidy way to self-delete so they become very critical in helping us to manage our response now that's all inside the cell never mind the fact that the flavonoids in plant foods also directly counter or, or uh, kind of neutralize various oxidative molecules, whether it's from sunlight or from uh, drug exposure or environmental exposures. So they also, in some ways, kind of have this protective, sh they help us create a bit of a protective shield against oxidative stress. And that all has not only the implications for helping cells deal with damage and undergo apoptosis, which is important in terms of cancer. If a cell can't repair its damage, it becomes what we know as mutated. And that mutated cell is really the first step in some ways towards becoming a cancerous growth. And uh, and if it that mutated cell doesn't undergo apoptosis, it's going to survive, so it will persist. So those two things are really important. It's also true that when we're under a lot of oxidative stress, if we don't have enough flavonoids in our cells, then that oxidative stress will create inflammation. And inflammation is probably the most dysregulating state that our body can be in. When we have any level of inflammation, uh, we just change the way our cells message to each other. We change the way they take up nutrients. We change their activities and we just start to create or unravel really all the regulations that our body has naturally in place to keep cells where they are, prevent them from proliferating too much. Those things all start to un untie in the context of inflammation. So, you know, I think those two reasons alone make flavonoids really important. And we haven't even touched on their impact with reducing insulin resistance and helping to modify hormonal irregularities. So they just are so ubiquitously important. You know, they are. And it's really just one class of phytonutrient. 
you know, I'm, I'm thinking of this paper from Lou, L-I-U, at, uh, I believe he was at Harvard at the time, I think it was published in 2013, where he shows the breakout of the phytonutrient family tree. And so you've got, we're just talking like one little segment of this mm -hmm. huge family tree of different nutrients. And um, I know some people have this love of flavonoids and they really go deep into it. Uh, there's another huge class of compounds, and these are the ones that I studied during my graduate degree called carotenoids, mm -hmm. which is like hundreds, 700 different unique compounds. Some of them convert into vitamin A and others don't. They have other roles in the body and some actually concentrate in certain parts, like in the ovary, um, mm -hmm. there was a paper showing, uh, I think it was 14 different carotenoids have been identified to localize in the ovary. And uh, as part of the follicular genomics, that retinol and some of these carotenoids are partly responsible for fertility, essentially. So what I'm kind of curious about is even these uh, other plant compounds, you know, the carotenoids, because it's kind of a sticky wicket. Uh, what I learned, especially even f during my graduate degree, is that sometimes these do exactly what you were explaining for the flavonoids, where they're very protective, they're apoptotic, they are, um, they're essentially, they're, they're safeguarding the cell. But then there are other times under certain conditions where people are smoking, they have hypoxia, where we're lowering oxygen, we're not as um, good in our circulation, and these carotenoids i.e. antioxidants, as they have been come to be known, along with a bunch of other nutrients, can act even as pro-oxidants. And so I don't know if you've actually, I'm sure that you've addressed this at some point in terms of uh, layering antioxidants into a system, a milieu, that perhaps is dysfunctional from a number of different standpoints and maybe getting even a different response and not to overcomplicate this but mm -hmm. it's it's a really interesting way to think about how plant compounds because they're pleiotropic they're you know they they can take on different persona and so when we put them into an environment that is not conducive to certain things we can get different results and so i don't know that's a long-winded thing into wanting to get your thoughts on kind of the double-sided nature of some of these plant compounds Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, a fair thing, and I think it's it's important that you did make the distinction between flavonoids and other plant compounds. I love flavonoids. So I delve in because they give all the color to the vegetables and fruits, and so I, you know I just do have an affinity for them as a group. But to your point, the carotenoids, the minerals, the other vitamins found in plant food are very important to their actions. You know, I think carotenoids is a good example of something like beta carotene which is one of the carotenoids is available as a dietary supplement it's not a supplement that i recommend and the reason being that you know when you take out some of these compounds and you isolate them they do have very different effects and actions in the body and you know nature has we've we've evolved to eat foods and foods contain all of these compounds that are surrounded by other in the case of beta carotene beta carotene, other carotenoids, as well as other, you know, mineral and vitamin antioxidants and these flavonoids. So the action in our body is very different. Um, and, and then to your point too, I think we do need to take into account what, what's the, what's this flavonoid going into? What's the body like? Like in the case of a smoker, 
when you take beta-carotene, beta-carotene is going to donate its electron all day long. So it's going to try to quench these, these electron-hungry molecules that come from cigarette smoke. But in donating its electron, the beta-carotene becomes very unstable. And unless there are these other compounds to give to stabilize the, the beta-carotene molecule, it will find something to steal an electron from. And unfortunately, that can be a DNA, molecule in DNA, which then can cause mutation. So, you know, I think that can be kind of a deadly combination, which has actually been shown. People who take supplemental beta-carotene and smoke have a higher risk of, for example, lung, lung cancer than those who don't. Um, but if people who smoke ate a diet full of vegetables, they're going to reduce the risk of lung cancer. And that's also been shown because now we're getting the whole complex. Wow. You and I are again on the same page on this. Uh, and that's why when I'm talking with people about supplementation, talking about mixed carotenoids rather than isolated beta carotene, you know, it's so important to have that complexity and our human mind could never really replicate this in a supplement. So we have to do our best in ensuring it's kind of back to what Bruce Ames has talked about with the triage theory, right? It's almost like smaller amounts of many seems to create more resilience than high amounts of a few. And right. so it, it really speaks to what you're saying about, you know, don't just take beta carotene high amounts and <laughs> be a smoker. You know, we have to exercise precaution, which, you know, again, makes sense of, you know, why we would want to work with a health professional that knows these types of things. Yeah. And I think the other thing I would say is that uh, I think we've done ourselves a disservice by creating this category of things we call antioxidants because the mechanism, an antioxidant from a very technical perspective is just simply a molecule that can donate an electron because an oxidant is something that's electron missing an electron. So it's a very unstable molecule and antioxidants donate an electron and stabilize the molecule. But we as practitioners and as the general public have thrown into this antioxidant category lots of compounds that um, end up changing what we call our sort of redox potential or our antioxidant oxidative state. But the path to that state is very different for different compounds. So vitamin E is an a very different antioxidant than, say, turmeric root. And the mechanisms that they each employ are really different. So, and, and I think that is important because it can it can help us to understand why, for example, vitamin E is maybe not a good idea if somebody's getting radiation therapy, whereas turmeric root is just fine. They're both antioxidants, but they have such different mechanisms of action that their implication and their activity in the body is just very different too. You know, maybe this is something we can talk about when I have you back for a webinar because this whole thing with in the industry about ORAC and how that's actually measured is it deceiving or is it an actual representation? You know, usually when we look at even ORAC scores, we're looking at one particular radical, which mm -hmm. may be one particular type of antioxidant like you're speaking to, whether it's lipophilic. Uh, you know, there are all these things about what we see out there versus how these things actually work and how they work in concert with each other, different environments, different pHs. Anyway, it's just... Uh, I feel like this is like a whole rabbit hole of um, yeah <laughs> of exploration for us to go deeper into. But I want to ask you about something a little bit different, but uh, maybe it brings together a bit of the carotenoids and the flavonoids, kind of uh, our, our our loves together, which is spices. 
I want to get your take on spices. You know, I found there have been some really intriguing articles talking about cancer, the processes within cancer, the start of cancer, the uh, whether it's the initiation, the promotion, and um, metastases, and how different spices can even connect into different processes related to cancer. But what's your take on spices in general? Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan. Uh, the spicier, the better. <laughs> and by that, I mean getting a large variety of spices. And so sometimes people think of spices just hot you know, pepper stuff, but all the spices, these are, if you think about how a spice is made, it's basically a plant part that's been dried. And then, um, so when we, even a quarter teaspoon of, of a spice is representative of quite a lot of plant material. So it's, they're really concentrated plant material is the way I think of spices. And there's lots of studies that have shown that people who consume more uh, diets that have a greater quantity of spice in them have longer lives. They have lower risk of cardiovascular disease, lower risk of cancers and other chronic illnesses, better blood sugar control. So I think it's really important. I think a lot of us have spices that we have in our drawer that have been there for years. (laughs) And, you know, most, um, I think it was Rebecca Katz who told me that, hey, you know what, if that spice has been there for more than six months, throw it out because it's lost a lot of its activity. The volatile oils of the spices have kind of evaporated by that point. So it's best to buy sm- small amounts and use them a lot. And uh, But, yeah, I, can, I mean, I can't say enough about spices. I think, you know, a good, really good example of that is our is curry. Curry has got just packed full of all different kinds of herbal spices. And people who consume curry, and in fact, the more frequently they consume curry, not only do they have better longevity and lower risk of disease, but their body just functions better. They have better lung function, for example, uh, just related to their curry consumption. So, uh, yeah, spices, can't say enough about them. (laughs) So let's go in the opposite direction from the very colorful to the very bland. Mm. What's your take on the keto diet? for cancer. I'm sure you get asked this a million times and I'm kind of curious to hear your response to it. So the ketogenic diet is, um, it's essentially, so it's a diet that's, you know, full of fat, very low carbohydrates. So the only vegetables that are in it are low carbohydrate vegetables. So it's definitely restricting the, um, range of vegetables that people can eat. There's very few, very little fruit in it. Um, a lot of, a lot, just a lot of oil. And, uh, so when we, when we create a diet that's just the, that the main fuel is fat, then we switch the metabolism of our cells to rely on breaking down fat into fatty acids and generating ketones, which can be used to make just to, to make ATP or energy. Cancer cells, some cancer cells are not very good at doing that, so it does selectively starve, if you will, some cancer cells. More importantly to me is that in order for a tumor to grow, there's uh, what's called a tumor microenvironment. So the stromal tissue around the cancer cell, which contains fibroblasts primarily in other cells, are literally co-opted by the cancer cells. And that happens through chemical messaging between the cancer cells, the leading edge of the tumor, and the stromal cells. Those stromal cells are under a lot of growth pressure. They're under, they they change their own 
chemicals, secretions, their own cytokine profile, and they are very what's called glycolytic. So they need a lot of glucose. So when people are eating a ketogenic diet, they are selectively starving some of the tumor cells, but I think really what's happening is that they're starving these co-opted stromal cells. And that can be important. When that happens, then that co-optation goes away so this, the tumor doesn't get what it needs to continue to grow. There's not as much new blood vessel growth, for example. Uh, the pH of the tissue changes. And so I think ketogenic diets can, in fact, slow the growth or even stabilize the growth of cancer. I have not seen ketogenic diets reverse cancer. I think it's theoretically possible if that slowing and stopping happens in the context of, say, a cytotoxic treatment, whether it's chemotherapy or some other treatment or super strong immune, targeted immune attack, I think it could happen. Um, so I think there is a role for the ketogenic diet uh, in cancer control, and I don't think that it is, in most cases, a forever diet as, far, as part of a cancer control strategy. There's usually sort of a temporal period uh, that it works and it's effective. Um, and I think it's most indicated for people who have active disease as a way to kind of control that disease. I don't find myself recommending it as a preventive diet, generally speaking, just because of the restrictions in terms of the plant kingdom. But I do want to acknowledge that there are many people out there who comfortably eat a ketogenic diet long term and seem to be fine, nutritionally speaking. So I think that, you know, you can do it. It just takes a lot of vigilance. No concerns about metabolic endotoxemia or creating leaky gut with all the fat? Yeah, so there, you know, that again, that's one of the issues I have with it being very long term. And um, so that there's fiber deficiencies that happen, there's vitamin D deficiencies that can happen, vitamin B12 deficiencies. So there's there are issues associated with the ketogenic diet for sure. Um, on a scale of things, if somebody's dealing with a metastatic cancer that is likely to claim their life, uh, you know, it's for some people worth the risk of those issues to consume a metagenic diet. And um, those, and I don't, see that in every person. I think there's ways you can kind of compensate for some of those potential side effects. You know, for example, supplementing with fiber goes a long way and using uh, fiber mucopolysaccharide rich things like slippery elm bark as a daily supplement is also very important. So I think there are mitigation strategies. But, but you're raising a point which is just important. You know, there is no one size fits all uh, using and the ketogenic diet is really taking diet to a different level. It's how can we use diet as an actual weapon against the cancer? So it's a therapy. And it, when you're using diet as a therapy, there's going to be benefits and there's going to be risks. And I think you have to do a very thorough assessment of that and make sure that it's the right thing for you at that time. That's really well said. Uh, the whole idea of personalization and diet as therapy. So as we come to a close here, I just have a couple of... Um, uh, other just kind of curiosity questions. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, being a, a cancer thriver and uh, dri now driver of your own life <laughs> in this new way, um, how do you eat? Like a day in the life of Dr. Lease, what mm -hmm. are you, what are some staples that you just make sure that you do most of the time? Maybe mm -hmm. some things you do some of the time, but are, are there certain practices. I know that intermittent fasting is becoming like all the rage. We just talked about the keto, but what is your eating like? I'm just kind of curious if you would share that with us. 
Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, so I first say that I'm not an extremist, so I'm very moderate in everything I do for the most part, uh, but that includes my diet. So I enjoy food. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy food as a social event, um, and so I don't really, I have to say, have any restrictions in my diet. Um, I do have some things, some some ways in which I approach my diet that are constant. So for one, I do practice intermittent fasting. I fast for at least 13 hours every night, and that's very important to me. I also try to stop eating early in the day, so I usually finish consuming calories by about seven at night um, at the latest, sometimes earlier. And um, and then in terms of my diet, I would say that I, you know, my diet is, unless I go out, it's organic. And I think that's important, not just for avoiding pesticides, but I also eat organically because I feel that those fruits and vegetables are more nutrient rich. And I like supporting that farming practice. Um, and then from there, I really do think about color. You know, I, for me, a bad diet day is when I'm traveling and most of my food is a shade of brown. Mm. <laughs> And um, so I'm much happier when I have lots of color. So I get color through, uh, you know, in the morning I might have some uh, whole grain kind of cereal and put some uh, berries and fruit in there. Or if I have uh, some toast, I might even use some organic jam that I really like that doesn't have added sugar in it and uh, even add some fruit to that. I like salads for lunch and um, I like salads for dinner and I like, we always have vegetables when we eat dinner. Um, I mean, I just, yeah, I guess I don't have necessarily a pattern per se, except that I really seek color in my diet. Music to my ears. <laughs> I love that. Um, and this is something I used to talk about at the cancer retreats is uh, if I was stranded on a desert island and I knew I had to survive and be cancer-free and try to reduce inflammation as much as possible, what are the three things I would want to take with me? And I always would say the same things. I said broccoli, turmeric, and dental floss. <laughs> Everybody would always laugh at the dental floss, and then I would talk about, you know, microinflammation, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, you need your teeth to eat and survive, and yeah. the mouth is a microcosm of the macrocosm. So what might be your three must-haves, and we might even think not even desert islandish, but even, like, travel, you know, mm-hmm. that you do a lot of traveling and speaking and going different places. So three must-haves if we are thinking about remaining cancer-free so my first thing would be exercise, and um, I think it, you know the more I learn about movement and the importance of daily movement, the more I'm convinced it's really critical to yeah. cancer prevention. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say, I think it's even surpassed diet in my in my mind in terms of its impact. Um, you know, that's unfair because it's the combination wow. that's really magic. But I think movement is critical, so I take right. that. And plan for that when I travel. Okay, that's number one. Uh, number two is actually uh, stress management. And um, again, I, the more I read about the impact of chronic stress as a uh, complete metabolic disruptor, uh, it's just amazing how detrimental chronic stress is. So, you know, I think 
again, kind of making it more realistic with your travel example, travel can be stressful. And so I need to think about how can I make this less stressful and, and just remind myself that every day in my life, I need to uh, incorporate activities which mitigate my stress. Um, that can be sitting down and enjoying a good meal. That can be reading a, you know, contemplative reading every day. It can be doing something fun, whatever it is. But I think stress management is really critical. You know, I just have to toss in quickly. There's a great quote that I just posted on my Instagram from Hans Selye, which is, it's not stress that kills us. It's our reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying, you know, finding ways to mitigate it, like how do we, do we take a bath? Do we um, read a book? You know, there are so many ways to transform that situation. So I love it that you're, you're mentioning the hard ones, by the way. <laughs> These are like huge ones onto themselves, but I like it. Exercise and stress management. Okay. Number three. Yeah. So number three would be food. I mean, it's hard to narrow this down to one food at this point, but, um, I would probably, I mean, the first food that comes to mind is kale. I just love kale. So I just want to eat it on my little Island or my travel. Plus it's got so many good nutrients, uh, trace minerals. I really like the trace minerals in kale, the carotenoids in kale, the, the, you know, the sulforaphane compounds, the fiber. Um, so I would definitely take that. I have to say that I would probably have to bring olive oil with me too, because olive oil is again, just such a, uh, polyphenolic rich, anti-disease compound plus it goes well with kale so i you know want those two things together <laughs> um and uh yeah gosh i don't even know how i would narrow all my diet down to to essentials but i think what i would say is in summary is that i would really try to to aim for let's go back to the travel something that's got a lot of dark green in it and a good quality oil and, you know, I'm not as concerned about protein, although I think that helps with energy and all that. But really, we generally all get more protein than we need. So, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So uh, this has been great. It's it's so nice to have this conversation with you and um, just to hear you sing the praises of color and, uh, you know, just really giving us a sense of hope and promise for cancer prevention by doing some uh, – some things in our lives that uh, all of us have the locus of control in some way uh, to make happen. So I'm kind of curious, what's on the horizon for you? And um, what are are you out there about uh, doing? I know that you've been working with TAP Integrative for health mm-hmm. professionals. Talk with us more about your offerings for either patients, people that like to come see you to talk about their specific condition, uh, or maybe on the health professional side too. Yeah, absolutely. So TAP Integrative is um, a really wonderful um, nonprofit. It's an educational web-based nonprofit resource for integrative healthcare practitioners. So we feature uh, re- re- you know, renowned experts such as Deanna Minich on TAP Integrative, and each expert is there essentially talking from their clinical experience. And from these experts, we gain clinical protocols, and uh, that's all supported, of course, by the published research. So everything's been vetted through that lens. Um, so it's a really great way for the new practitioner as well as the seasoned practitioner to uh, learn new ways to approach health and disease. And we also have these wonderful case discussions where um, 
experts can dialogue or do dialogue with one another and through that very rich exchange we learn different approaches and how to think about conditions so it, that's been a really wonderful thing for me to do and involve myself in that's tapintegrative.org and then on my on I have my fingers in lots of pies as I'm sure you do as well but I do have a part-time clinical practice and um and because I have a part-time practice in part, I've also engaged with an app that uh, Carolyn Gazella, who's also my co-author, uh, and I have developed, which is really to bring each person personalized cancer thrivership. So we call that the iThrive Plan. And people can learn about the iThrive Plan on and my practice on my website, which is drlise.net. That's D-R-L-I-S-E dot net. Yeah, and I like your site a lot. I, I like the, um, it's so easy to navigate. People can book an appointment on there with you. Um, your Five to Thrive book, I mean, I have it. I remember bringing it to some of those cancer retreat uh, talks that I was giving. In fact, it was constantly on my radar to the point that the Cancer Retreat Center started to carry your book. So, uh, <laughs> well, thank because it's you. so easy. It's so, um, it's laid out. It's, people don't have to understand all the science, but with you, everything is solid. I mean, even when you had me as part of the TAP Integrative my goodness, I don't think I've ever gone through so much vetting of everything that I was going to be presenting and like, what are the papers that support that? So um, I always know with you, it's high quality, high science, high evidence, and overall feel good experience. Like you really connect very well with people. So I want to thank you for your time and talking with me um, and really getting this word out about cancer prevention and um, you know, giving people some easy tips uh, as to what they can do. So uh, thanks, Lise. It's been a pleasure. Yes, well, thank you. And I really appreciate all that you are and do in the world as well. And it's been my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much.